with the stadium announcement yesterday, I saw some tweet, some guy dredged up of the uh, initial introduction of it at GDC, at the GDC we were at, by the CEO yeah. of Google, who walked out on stage and he's pronking around and then he's like, I have a confession to make. I'm not much of a gamer. And that was, that was his opening line. Yeah, so why are you here telling us this? <laughs> Scotch. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 383 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm the tools programmer. I'm Sam and I'm not a programmer. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is September 30th, 2020. Before we get started, we have a warning. There's going to be profanity in this show. So buckle up. It's going to be great. Oh, yeah. Uh, We'd also like to thank our supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net, whose donations help keep the podcast going. Uh, We've got a donation and message from T4, who says... Hey guys, this is my favorite podcast because it covers so many of my interests. Games programming, which is how I started programming. Art, for the games I program. And now web (laughs) development, which I have transitioned my career to at the bank I used to be a manager at. Thanks. Nice, 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 nice. Although I have heard that doing web dev at banks is nightmarish because you're not allowed to use any of the fun new stuff. Mm. Uh, So hopefully that's not true for you because yeah, still working on windows XP. Yeah. It's like yep. windows XP and you're using like, I don't even know what the old deal, but also old and web and web years is oh, it's very like different than in most yeah. contexts. It's yeah. It's like a week goes by and like, Oh, here's a new, better way to do everything that just came out, you know? So you're like, but I just, I just figured yeah, out. I just figured the old new out. way. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there is something to admire about the tenacity of banks to mm-hmm. just be like, no, yep. no, we're not part- we're not participating in anything. My uh, when you put that credit card in the slot, it's going to take six minutes to validate that <laughs> transaction, and that's just what we're doing. It's okay? a <laughs> phone line. I mean, they still yeah. close after, you know, 5 p.m., which previously was because they needed to actually, you know, finish the books for the day or whatever else. But uh, you don't yeah. actually have to do that anymore. But they're still like, no, actually, this is convenient for us. Mm-hmm. So uh, shut up. Yeah. Give us your so money. Some of them do go to have websites now, though. So <laughs> Too bad. It is really – it is – and I also every time I interact with, with a banking website because there's their security features. Like I, I'm pretty sure they're just relying on the fact that it's so illegal to fuck with banks. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like – Yep, because yep. their security system is the one that like every security person today would tell you, yeah, do all of this it. is bad. Do not do any of this this way, right? The whole security questions like oh my God. answer answer these easily researchable questions about yourself kind of And they make you answer like like five of them or something. They're like, give us yep. as much possible vulnerability. As much personal <laughs> information. Yeah, uh, uh, let's yep. open up as many holes as we can into uh, <laughs> access points into your account. I do have Love a pro it. tip for that while we're you know on this aside, which is – you can go to a like a password generator, but it'll generate passphrases as in like random words. So like there's an XKCD oh. comic from a long time ago where he was like, the way that we're taught to make passwords is really dumb because they're impossible to remember. And also actually not that hard for computers to figure out, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's Horse actually, battery staple, Adam. Yeah, horse battery staple. It's like, is the, is mm-hmm. the example, right? Which Sam Correct still remembers. Batteries. I still <laughs> fucking remember it because it's so ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And, uh-huh. and, I, and I've actually done this for a few of the things because usually I just password manage everything, but I have a few things that I don't want, you know, and they're, they're like extra entries into that system. And like one of them I came up with, like I just rolled random words, you know, and I think I've, I only used it like 
twice when I first thought it up, like mm-hmm. a year ago. And then last week I needed to get into that system again. And I was like, oh fuck. And then I thought for a second, and I was like, ooh, and I remembered it. <laughs> right. Horse battery staple, uh, baby. It wasn't that back. though. <laughs> but it wasn't that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but so if you do this, if you take the same approach for your banking or any the, anytime you see those questions where it's like, yeah. oh, what's your mother's maiden name, whatever, right? Always answer with lies, but just have a good mechanism by which you know what lies you're told. So actually, lies. yeah, because I just do this in my password manager, actually, and I just have like, I just copy paste the question. Everything. Yeah, and then, I, yep. and then I just roll a random passphrase. Because the thing I learned though, the first time mm-hmm. from doing this is don't just roll a weird password because they'll ask you to say the answer on the phone. Yeah. And instead of like G, <laughs> lowercase G, capital Q. Uh-huh. Carrot. So <laughs> I learned that one the hard way. And then now what I do is I just do an actual passphrase with like five or six randomly drawn words, you know, which is still really weird because I'll be like, okay, what's your, what's your, what street did you grow up on? Whatever, you know? And then I just, it sounds like I'm saying like a CIA passphrase <laughs> or something, you know? <laughs> Uh, which is kind of funny, but I, they haven't, nobody has like even like batted an eye in that context. Cause like, I felt really awkward in that scenario, but they just like, they're just like, okay. And then we went on to the next like, thing. You can also just explain it away. Cause somebody is like, what street did you grow up on? And you're like exclamation point, period, G, mm-hmm. M, right. And then they'll be like, what? And you'd be like, I'm from Iowa. And they'll be like, oh, <laughs> Give a reason. Does this need to be a good uh, one? People accept. Uh, uh, yeah, we have you know we we have a different approach to street names uh, in Iowa. It's just pure random number, random. Yeah, we just have so many streets in Iowa that we ran out of words to use because, mm-hmm. as we all it's know, it's super densely populated, most yeah, populated state in the whole country. Yeah, by streets specifically, not people. Just a lot yeah. of streets. <laughs> streets per mile uh, is very high up, very high. Yeah, well, we actually, have three thousand two hundred streets per capita. Well, what, yeah, know? what a lot of people don't know is that every because people talk about cornrows, right? But the thing that's actually in between the rows of corn, because the corn street. row is the part with the corn on it, right? Yep. Yeah, you need a street name. In between is the street. Otherwise, how do you yeah. address how, it? Yeah, how are you going to find it? How you get? How you think how those the, combines are getting out there with GPS without yeah, the yes. fucking street? Absolutely not. Absolutely. Yeah, it is pretty yeah. annoying, and that's why somebody still has to be in the combine, even though it's pretty much self-driving at this point, yeah, because yeah. they have to use Google Maps and put in the, the street name for the next row of corn yeah. that they mm-hmm. want to go to. Uh, and they have to do that you know, every few minutes. Like yeah. As soon as they get to the end of a row, they're like, all right, take me to street dot comma – MJ12. Well, it's right? also why you see, you know, the fence posts that actually contain the the corn is actually basically these sort of miniature uh, you know, street signs. Or as you're driving, then you could see when you're in the combine, you could see which street you're on, you know, on yeah. the, sort of like a incrementing, it's almost yeah. like a mile marker sort of a system. Um, yeah, you don't see it from the road because the, the street names are on the other side facing, of the yeah, post. For the farmer. Yeah. Facing inward to the, yeah, yeah, farming is pretty complicated. We don't need to get too into it, no, you know, no, but yeah, it's, you know, there's a lot of tech, mm-hmm. so... Uh, anyway, so thanks for the donation, mm-hmm. I guess. And good luck in, in uh, financial technology. <laughs> Make the world a better place, please. Yeah. Uh, now, before we get into some studio news, we got to talk about the fact that uh, it's a prime number episode, 383. Ooh. Right, we talked about it. Nice good. work. Yeah, we covered it. Uh, I feel like that's, you know, we always got to make sure we make note of when we hit prime number episodes because primes are special. I think there's an Amazon Prime Day coming up, like a surprise oh. one they're doing in October for some reason. So uh, oh. there's that also. What does that yeah. mean again? I, I think there's just sales. I think it's just sales. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I guess that's yeah. a thing too. There. Yeah, I think it's Bezos basically the needs same. a new ship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's basically the same as the normal, just like using Amazon experience, but just. Actually, you know didn't I mean? Bezos' rocket explode the other day? Uh, so probably that's why. Probably his, um, his rocket exploded on the launch pad. And hopefully, was like, oh, hopefully shit. Hopefully with no people in it. Was it a. 
It was uncrewed, yeah. Oh, perfect. It was funny though because they have a they have an emergency you know abort system. It's basically like a, another rocket on top of the rocket that rips the crew pod off of the currently exploding rocket and throws it as far. It's like an ejector seat, but cool. for like an entire for capsule. So yeah. this is a pretty common thing for rockets to have from like way back in the day when rockets were kind of exploding on the launch pad most of the time, you know. Um, and so they were like, well, the good news is the launch abort system worked perfectly. So, I mean, that's so, fair. You don't really get to true, test yeah. that, you know, under most – Well, it's very expensive to test <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, you know, that even though the whole rocket exploded, if I was a crew member who was going to be going into that mm-hmm. rocket, I would, I would now be – at least a little bit more relaxed knowing that even yeah. if the entire rocket explodes, I will be wrenched away at 20 G's to safety. And hopefully I survive, you know, that. that. Experience. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's probably like being in a, in a high speed car crash with lots of airbags, you know, you just get yeeted away really fast. So anyway, prime day it's coming up, I guess. Uh, <laughs> although, although with, in a car, you don't get yeeted out of the car though, you know? Well, but you do get yeeted sort of just in around. G-forces. Yeah. yeah. Just, you kind of just get – you take a real guess, hard kind of yeah, jostling. It's the, it's the balloon. It's the airbag that yeets into you, I guess. Because you know, it's something – Into your face. Something must yeet when it comes to accidents for everybody oh, yeah. to be okay. That's, that's, the, that's one of the laws of uh, physics, right? Yeah, like so. every yeet creates <laughs> equal and opposite counter yeet, yeah. mm-hmm. I think is mm-hmm. what it says. That's right. Uh all right, studio news. We had our first ever external playtest of Crashlands 2. <gasps> so what do I mean by this? Okay, so we've been working on Crashlands 2 for almost two years, although I guess seven or eight months of that was developing new tools like cake frames and the Game Changer. Um, and Crashlands 2 has undergone a lot of, of iterations in terms of the underlying tech. We also transitioned to Game Maker 2.3 d- during development, and we had to redo a bunch of oh, the code. About that. Yeah. It's, been a, it's been a bit of a turbulent technical sort of underpinning, mm-hmm. um, but we've gotten to the point in the game where a lot of the early game systems are starting to look and play and feel like how we think they're going to be on launch. Yeah. That doesn't mean that everything is there. Actually, a lot of things are missing, but those are things that players will be introduced to a little bit later in the game. So if we're talking about stuff like, uh, you know, stuff that we want to add, like fishing and farming and like a lot more elaborate, um, like combat kinds of things, right? Well, those are things that that open up over time. And so in the first hour or two of gameplay, a lot of that, those first couple hours is just like fundamental navigating the world, interacting with characters, doing quests, learning about all the different like baseline stuff you can do. And that's the most sensitive part of the game experience. Yeah, it's the onboarding. Uh, yeah, that's the part where people get kicked out, right? Um, if you, if they get lost, if they get confused, if you have introduced them to something, but you haven't adequately prepared the player to like how to deal with that thing, then they just, they get bored, they get frustrated, they they just sign out and forget about the game. You know, you, you haven't you haven't hooked them, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh typically, you know, when we're working on this this early player experience, this is something that oftentimes gets a full rebuild, you know, 10, 15, 20 times uh, as we learn more about the game and about what's expected and stuff like that. So, and the only way to do that, the, literally the only way is to show the game to somebody who has never seen it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter how much we can try to 
put ourselves in the shoes of a new player, you we know, know everything. Much. Yeah. yeah. And so stuff that is is intuitive to us, like, oh, yeah, there's this menu here and there's a button mm-hmm. for it. And I already know what that menu does. I know all the d- nuances of it, right? And so when I encounter that menu for the first time, uh, I, I just go into it and start using it because I know it, right? But what we see when we show the game to a new player is, in some cases, they'll never even see the button. Mm-hmm. Or they'll open the menu and it won't be fully, like, immediately obvious what that menu is for. And then they'll close it. And then it's as if it never happened. They'll just completely forget Mm-hmm. about the existence of both the button and the menu mm-hmm. forever, right? Yeah, so the, um, the tricky bit then is basically what you want to do in the onboarding is you want to somehow sort of invisibly hold the player's hand because people also don't like, uh, I mean, a lot of people play you know, mobile free-to-play experiences where they freeze the whole game and like won't let you do anything. They, they put like a, yeah. a big cursor, like click this button, which actually that I think is also not good because it's so handholdy that the player is not you don't know why it's 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 kind of like if you if you go and sit at a lecture and somebody just tells you for an hour like here's how this works right memorize these facts yeah and and you you haven't actually done it you haven't done any of the things or interacted with the things that the professor's telling you uh and that and it doesn't really stick until then you go do a bunch of homework about it like 20 times over, right? And, and that's it, well, when it finally It's works. always about why, right? And it's stuff, because yeah. if you're playing a game for the first time, what you're doing is like, you're trying to take all the stuff that you know about games, and then you're trying to, th- this, you're trying to figure out what's supposed to be happening in this game based on your, whatever preconceived ideas you had coming in because of stuff that you've seen, right? And now you're trying to like bootstrap as you touch the world. You're trying to bootstrap an understanding of how it works, which is all about the whys. It's like, okay, why am I doing this? Like, why does why did that do that? Why is this button here? What is it? You know, you're. It's all about these why questions. And if you don't have anything to hold on to, because you're not being handheld in some way, mm-hmm. then it's effectively random, context-free information, right? And like, you don't know what to. You don't know what's important. And it is. I mean, yep. as much as it is funny to see the. You know, the far extreme side of that being like freeze the screen, darken the whole thing, point an arrow mm-hmm. at the thing, only let you click that, right? And as much as that is is like still not great, um, it it is funny how much more helpful that is than – because like I would say that that's your like – Well, I think if you- you're not going to invest like the serious time into figuring out how to do a nice – pleasant onboarding experience that really hits everything, you know, that's, I think your second best option. Oh, because like, yeah, you know, like, you're right. Well, I think it's because what you're trying to balance is you're actually trying to balance early engagement with knowledge yeah. about, with like learning yeah, how yeah. the game works. Yeah, because just reality is that, learning isn't very interesting and in, yeah. without context. Yeah, and so I think this is the thing where, you know, we did this in the original game as well. Uh, you know, you start off on the, uh, in the original game, you start off on the spaceship. And so we're like, we use that as the tutorial area, teach you how to, uh, basically heal yourself, teach you how to avoid damage, that sort of thing. Um, and so we try to basically wrap it in like a narrative context and make it all feel like you're actually playing the game just from the get-go. You know, it's an important piece of the puzzle for us. Uh, but so, yeah, it's, it really is, a, because it's a really interesting challenge, but how do you make it so that the player is is able to actively engage under what feels like their own sense of agency about the game? Well, also making sure that like the bumper, the bumper rails are up uh, such that they can... You want them to not really have agency because yes. if they do things in a strange order, um, and just, just to kind of give a little bit more context about like the specific problem that we that we came across is that is that in Crash Hands 2, you know, Flux has her 
handy dandy space wrench, which is a super important uh, item. In the original game, the space wrench was like more like a weapon that was yeah, like it's kind of a, it was kind of a throwaway kind of item almost because mm-hmm. like it's just like a monkey yeah. wrench. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, and the question is too, yeah, we wanted we wanted the space wrench to be a bit more of like an iconic kind of staple of how Flux interacts with it's the like world. It's like the Half-Life crowbar, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of a Yeah. Vibe. And so so we decided to kind of tie the the wrench into build mode. So when you when you equip your wrench, that's how you go into build mode and your wrench is the thing that is sort of like blasting, you know, structures into place or hoovering them up off the ground and, and that kind of thing. Um, but since the wrench is now an item as opposed to in the original game, you know, build mode was just a button on the interface that you could always go into no matter what, right? Um, and in the original game, something that I we kind of forgotten about. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure this is the case. Hmm. Is that the build mode button isn't there until until you do the quest where you craft some floors. floors. Yeah, yeah. Because entering build mode with nothing to place in build mode is just a confusing. Like, what mm-hmm. the hell is this menu? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, kind of experience. And that's one of those things where. If, what we found is if people go into a menu and they can't figure out what it's for, then they will sometimes develop a mental block where they will, they'll be hesitant to go back into that menu mm-hmm. uh, later on because to the in their mind their brain has kind of walled it off as like ah that's like a weird confusing useless uncomfortable. Well, I think it's it's place, they, you know? I think it's they also feel because because most of the investigations that you're doing are actually subconscious you know processing mm-hmm. right, and I think it's that your brain has decided it's already investigated that right. Yeah. I think there's I think no, more so than it's there. like. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like there's nothing there because you already like tried to use it to solve a problem or to like figure out what it was. Didn't get any answers. And so now it's been like, okay, I've already investigated this. And you don't actually consciously realize that you investigated it, but didn't come up with any answers of like what it is so that mm-hmm. you would reinvestigate it later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do. Um, so I'll give a kind of like a high level overview, like the whole playtest situation, though, that we've kind of mm-hmm. gone through this week. Uh, I think it'd be helpful to kind of contextually. So, like, on we're basically a year out from the moment uh, back in 2021 where my wife had played the game and I had taken like four pages of notes, sent those over to Seth. And then we thought we realized like, Oh shit, in order to implement all these notes, most of them just tweaks. It would take Seth another like six weeks of work because we didn't have the game changer at the time. Right. That was actually the prompting point last, the end of last September um, to begin work on the game changer because of this realization like, Oh wow, this game is very big, very complex. There's not going to be a way we can iterate this thing toward completion without better tooling. And for so, any new listeners, the Game Changer is our sort of in-game system by which we can manage all of the game's data so that it's mm-hmm. easy to add things, edit things, all of that stuff. And so, and at, at that time, when my wife had played, she played for um, maybe about like a, maybe an hour and a half or two in the first kind of session. And then I'd ask her like, oh, do you want to play again? And she's like, eh. Like I mean, it's, it, look, you know, it looks really pretty and stuff, but uh, I'm good. And then only later in the in the day, she was like, "Okay, maybe actually, I do kind of want to go back in there." Um, now, fast forward to then this past Sunday, and we'd gotten the game to a point as of last Friday where I was like, "Okay, cool. Like we have all the stuff. Kind of our onboarding shape is there. I'm just gonna throw her at it and see what happens." And uh, she's now on hour ten of playing it. Got very into it. Um, sort of screaming with glee the whole time. So again, came away with a bunch of notes. And uh, I've been being pestered sort of throughout the entire week to leave my work computer so that she can also keep keep playing her save and that sort of thing, right? So it's been this really interesting switch from a year ago in terms of like, okay, cool. So like all that stuff that we did to make it so we could do the things we thought we needed to do seemed to be paying dividends. Um, 
And for me, that came across that as like a very glowing report of like, cool, yeah, the game's got the legs. I think the onboarding's working, yada, yada. Because it's been a year for her, so I was like, whatever. Um, but of course, the problem is that like us, she had just enough context. Like I, most of the systems, underlying systems have actually changed since she played. Access yeah, she didn't changed. need to be onboarded like completely. in a very direct way yeah. this time around. And so She also knows too much. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, then we, we pivoted to the uh, additional two external play tests during the week. And the structure of those basically play for up to two hours. And that's always a big question, which is like, will people actually want to play for two hours? Uh, our listeners might recall from decades ago, it feels like now, our first play session with Crashlands, the very first tester quit after like 15 minutes. It was just like, yeah, I'm not really into this. Um they're like, yeah, this uh, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so you and know, we were like, fair. That's good to know. Yeah, good to that's note. a good note. Page of notes. Um, we yeah. should talk about how you pick playtesters too, which maybe you're going to get into. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So yeah, basically what we did then was we said, okay, let's get uh, a person. It's I guess it's more important to just know who is playing the game for a playtest uh, than it is necessarily to always be uh, exactly picking. And what I mean by that is like the context that the person is bringing with them is very important to know when you're looking at your feedback notes, right? Because mm-hmm. if, for example, let's say you get someone who like only plays Candy Crush, but you are you got like a murder simulator, uh, you know, you're going to have a very different pile of notes from that um, than you would from someone yeah. who's also played murder simulator. Or in our case, uh, if you get somebody who's just like absolutely played the shit out of OG Crashlands, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and then... Now, differentiate between somebody who did that six years ago and somebody mm-hmm. who is actively playing the shit out of original Crashlands, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the experiences that they're going to bring are going to be because we cause also we, like, we need to take care of that audience too at some point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but so like so to Sam's point, it, it's this, it's this kind of delicate thing where it's yeah, it's not exactly like because in some ways it can be anybody as long as you mm-hmm. understand their relationship. But in most ways, don't waste your time, time right? Because like. Yeah, yeah. You know who's, yeah, know who's probably going to be interested, uh, who might actually be your audience for it, and generally pick from that pool. So we yeah. ended up pulling someone um, who had played the game originally when it first came out, uh, played all the way through, and then we picked someone who had never played any uh, crafting games at all, but who plays the shit out of a couple of games. So like, not not a gamer, but just like hasn't played in that genre ever, and is into collecting things. It's kind of the, the vibe. So putting both these people then uh, through the paces on the thing, and it's to, I think, Seth's point and Adam's point both earlier, um, it's it's amazing when you know everything about how the game works, watching someone who knows <laughs> nothing about how the game works, and seeing the things that are invisible. And I mean invisible. Like, you think you're flashing buttons. We've talked about this a lot in the past, but you think you're flashing buttons enough or, like, pointing out things enough. Buttons are always fucking invisible. Just, oh, man. It's <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's a trip trying to get you sort of find yourself on the other end of the of the video, just sort of praying that the person like just just mass just click just click on that, you know, just please. Yeah, because you also have to it. try to not interfere, right? It's like mm-hmm. it's like the wilderness documentaries where they're like, I, I know this horrible thing is unfolding in front of me, mm-hmm. but I just have to let it happen because it's nature, you know. Yep, yep. yep. So uh, so then from those two play tests, it was I think more a more balanced view because basically what I think I was seeing in basically Diana's case was that this is someone who essentially was already onboarded more or less, right? Who's able to just kind of get in and enjoy the experience, uh, get really basically pulled into all the loops that we've created uh, versus the onboarding. The whole point of onboarding really is to get people started on the loops, right? Get them invested in the world. Um, yeah, get them so, through the hard parts of just being like, what the fuck? And the <laughs> yes. They're like, oh, I get it. 
yeah. enough that I'm I'm willing to now do the the harder work of like figuring it out for myself, you know, like exactly. really figuring out all the details. Choosing my own path. Yeah. Well, it's like you got to equip people with enough tools that they can go answer their own questions. And this is like the thing I found most fascinating, um, which is that you see people try to problem solve uh, yeah. with what they know exists, right? Which by necessity, that's, you know, doesn't include the things that they missed that you were yeah. trying to point out, right? I think that's a really good way of thinking about it is, is the idea is that onboarding is about ensuring that your players have the tools they need to mm-hmm. solve to, from a problem solving perspective, right? Yep. To be able to understand the problems that they're going to run into and to, and to know not just how to, how to solve everything, but to feel like they understand enough that they can, you can explore, they have an entry point yeah. to get into the problems. Yeah. hundred percent. And so I think that that was really what we've been trying to hit with this. You know, it's, it is an open world, like adventure you're supposed to feel like you have agency, right? In, in terms of the experience. And so that's really what we, we've been aiming for. So uh, we did those, those play sessions, got, you know, they're like three or four pages of notes, but um, they largely came down to basically the same thing, which was Seth was talking about, kind of an order of operations problem and, and some of the just initializing of uh, build mode in particular that were causing some of these uh, some of these wrinkles, plus a few just comical, like, choices of hotkeys we'd made that people were mashing on accident, doing, turning certain things invisible. There's a couple of like, UX problems, Um which we're now kind of in the process of patching up. Uh, but it doesn't look like it's, I think it's, it'd probably be basically two days worth of tune-ups to get us to the next point um, where we can, you know, see if it works better than before. But uh, my favorite thing about it has been seeing, one, not just like, you know, after working on a thing for fucking two years and like not being able to show it to anybody and stuff, it is just really nice to have people play it even when you're taking notes and swearing in the background um, about how poor <laughs> of a job you might have done, you know, certain things. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's a, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a level of confidence in there, which is like, you, you know, that, that if you can get somebody bought in, mm-hmm. that they're going to have a great time. But if you're making something that's this large and complex, then you have to be incredibly careful about establishing that buy-in. Mm-hmm. And if at this stage, you know, if somebody coming into the game is clearly like lost or confused or not having a good time or whatever, um, it's easy to get discouraged and think like, oh, this game is is not mm. working, right? Which is actually not the case because they're not playing the game. They are learning the yes. game. And what is failing is the way that you're teaching, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so only only once you've reached a point where like you've iterated on that new player experience enough that that when you put it in front of a new player, they do all the things in the order that you think they should be doing them. And at that point, they're like, yeah, I'm still not interested, right? Mm-hmm. That's the point where you start to need to start to say like, okay, um, let's let's <laughs> let's answer some deeper questions yep. about what's actually yeah. going on. And what are we building? They are confounding factors, right? Because they interact. Yes. Yeah, um, definitely. But, but like, it is an important point is trying to, because it's not even about like, oh, it's it's like, it just is the onboarding or just is the game, right? But I think it's just the practice of, keeping both of those things in mind as you're trying to tease out the whys of like mm-hmm. what you saw people do, right? Of, right? of did they say they hated it because this aspect of the design is bad or because I didn't okay. onboard them into it properly, right? Like mm-hmm. yeah. it's all about the, because we've talked about this a lot in the past too of, of how important it is to never actually accept the feedback as the truth, mm-hmm. but as a representation of a truth, right? Which is about that person's experience. But the way that we all, and just in regular life, not just like in feedback, right? But just in regular life, the way that we understand things that happen is we, at some point, make an assumption about like, oh, this happened because X, right? We do that all the time. And we're basically wrong all the time because we just need something to like move on to the next thing, right? And 
you can get away with it a lot because you just have so many opportunities to make a new assumption and like try again, basically, mm-hmm. right? So, but in the context of like getting feedback, that same thing that normally most of the time isn't a big deal if something's a little off in terms of like mm-hmm. the whys, right? But here you can really go down a wrong path if you misinterpret the why oh, yeah. of some piece of feedback mm-hmm. and end up in a really bad spot. Well, and I think it's also really fascinating to watch how one decision you made will start to interfere and kind of compound into a series of cascading problems. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of my, my favorite example from the playtest is is we have uh, so we have two two action bars, two hot bars. So if if you played the original Crash Games, you may recall that we have this, you know, I think it's five slots now or four mm-hmm. slots. It's a hot bar. You can put your gadgets in there, stuff like that. Um in Crashes 2, we have two hot bars that you can swap between. One of them is for different kinds of tools, and the other is for more sort of combat-oriented gadgets. Mm-hmm. Well, for the longest time uh, in the early game, you don't have any gadgets or combat. So you have this second hot bar that's empty for a while, right, while you're kind of first getting your tools. So by pressing E on the keyboard, you can toggle between the two hot bar modes. But if you're a brand new player, you don't necessarily know that mm-hmm. that is what has happened mm-hmm. right. uh, because sometimes people will push a button and not even notice that they've pushed a button, right? Or, or they haven't, like, they didn't take note of the fact that, like, their hotbar had something in it and now suddenly it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they did notice that, but they don't know why, right? Mm-hmm. So so it was, it was a common occurrence for our testers to accidentally flip over to the wrong hotbar and then not make the connection that they could just push E again to flip back to the other hotbar, mm-hmm. right? And again, um, the button is it is it is right there in terms of like it's the button's right, right next, next to your movement buttons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to accidentally hit the button, but but also we had uh, some additional layers of of decisions that made this that exacerbated this problem. Uh, when you first start playing a game, one of the earlier things that happens is you enter into some quest dialogue, mm-hmm. uh, and we had E as the button that you hit to yep. advance the quest text. And people so, spam it, of course, because you're just... Yeah, so people, yeah, as they're reading through the quest, like, yeah, E, 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 right? So so people kind of really get into this habit, like, oh, E is an important button that I need to be hitting a lot. Because it's actually the most, the button that you press the most in, like, the first few minutes of the game. And so right. then... But, but it's uh, it's pe- important, but not in a way where, like, you know, uh, hitting your your attack button at the right time is important. Mm-hmm. And if you fuck it up, you have to wait for a cool dad. It's, like, yeah. it's important, but also like it, each individual press doesn't matter. It just doesn't yeah. matter that you did it. Yeah. And so what kept happening then is, is our testers would then approach something they wanted to interact with and they would push E thinking like, Oh, E is like my button that I do stuff with. Right. And so they would just keep flipping their hot bars around, <laughs> but not notice that they were doing that mm-hmm. and then end up in the wrong hot bar. Right. And so, so the feedback we got though, about this was when I push E in the world, that should let me interact with things, mm-hmm. right? And but our takeaway from it was was actually two different things. One is uh, we should use the use same e. button for those two. <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. we should we shouldn't <laughs> use E. We shouldn't use E for advancing quest text. Uh, and also, we should just go ahead and, and so instead we just switch it to a mouse click because that's how you interact with stuff mm-hmm. in the world, right? So it's now the same button as interacting. We moved the hotbar button over to T so that it's okay. farther away and it's it's like, you know, it's still close enough that you can get it, but you're a lot less likely to accidentally swap. 
And then the third thing we did is we made it so that it's almost impossible to be in the wrong hot bar now, where like if you hit the swap button, but you don't actually have anything in the other hot bar, it just doesn't swap. Uh, and if at some point you end up in a hot bar that is now empty because you've like run out of stuff or, you know, whatever, then it'll just auto swap to the other one if there's something in that, right? So so you're just, you're just always now uh, on a hot bar that has stuff in it and you can't end up on an empty hot bar. Um, and all of that came from this like cascading problem of the fact that we put E as the quest dialogue advanced. Well, this is why I love these though, because it's like there's certain, so you see these, and I guess the overall uh, sentiment from the, from the playtest was positive and I do want to ground that uh, sort of reinforce that piece of it, which is that, that in spite of how confusing <laughs> a lot of these things were, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, and I think it's, it's interesting because we, because people do have a lot of agency, right. Uh, still in the beginning, which means that even in places where we've maybe failed on some of these UX things or on some of the onboarding, if people are enjoying themselves in the world, which is the benefit, the cost of like, yeah, you got to make a whole fucking world, but at the same time, the benefit of having a world with a lot of elaborate systems is that people can essentially divert their attention. So this is what we'd see a lot. Which yeah, is they don't just get stuck. Yeah, they'd be like, they'd be like, oh, I can't figure that out. And then they, they would just be like, well, I'm just going to go collect some stuff. No point, right? But just like, I'm enjoying being here and like mm -hmm. moving through the space. And I do know how to interact enough with the space to do some stuff. So I'm going to go do that stuff for a bit while I kind of like marinate on whatever I guess I was trying to do before. Or maybe I'll just find something else. You know, kind of looking for like a magic something. Um and that was what I found fascinating. And I know that was also something that, uh, you know, I played because I played Elden Ring, which was my first kind of like Dark Souls-esque game ever. Uh, and that was a big point that people had made about the difference between that one and the previous games that had made it possible for more people to enjoy this newest iteration of it was the openness of it, which meant that if you hit a dead end where you can't figure out how to proceed, it's not actually dead end because there's like a billion other roads you just haven't actually bothered to go down yet. And there's a lot of other dead yeah. ends, you know, maybe far away down those that you can sort of work your way towards. So you can always yeah, be it's making a temporarily problems. blocked end, you know? Yes. Yeah. You can kind of a side pin road it. even. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and well, so this is also how we learn. This is that when you're learning like in the most effective way possible, it's also through the same process mm -hmm. of you bump against something you're trying to figure out. And then hopefully, whatever that thing is, gives you feedback as you poke it, right? So you can like poke it in a different way and see what it does and you can kind of try to figure it out, right? But when you get stuck, you have other things, you have a basic fallbacks and you have things that are similar, right? That you can also go explore. Like this is this is the path that I always take when I'm learning new tech, when I'm trying to like figure out how to program something new in a new collection of languages or something, right? Is go read about it a bit, try to figure out, get a get a set, get a handle Roughly on it, land. right? Mm -hmm. And then I attack it, and then I'm like, and then I just like flail and you know, get and like get error logs and try to understand. Like mm -hmm. you just go through this process, and it, inevitably at some point, I'm like, oh, I just can't fucking figure this out. And then I go do, and then I go looking around for something else that's like similar, you know. And then eventually, someday, I end up back at that thing, mm -hmm. right? Yep. With a new context, I've learned so much new stuff. I have different mental models and ways of thinking about things. And then now the thing that was impossible the first time, I'm just like, oh yeah, I see how this works, right? Mm -hmm. You just go right through it. I think, I think yeah. when a game is there's at its a, best, that's what it's going to do. It's going to sort of mimic that same learning experience. Yeah, but there's, there's a key difference there that you have to make sure that you're able to distinguish between when you're looking at sort of this new player experience, which is what you're describing, Adam, is you know what the problem is, yeah, but yeah. you haven't found yeah. a solution, right? Yeah. And what we what we found in our our first iteration of the new player experiences, we had several points where the players couldn't identify 
what the problem was. They didn't know what their goal was or what the game was trying to get them to do. And they had, their only option was to just kind of wander. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's, that's one of those, like you just kind of fill in time at that point, as opposed to like, oh, well, I, I, I know what problem A is, but I don't have a solution. So I'm going to fall back on problem B. And Mm -hmm. so this was like, I don't have problems other than I don't know what my problem is. That's my problem. (laughs) Uh, So that, that's one of those. So you're not going towards a different problem. You're just drifting away. You're just wandering. Yeah. Yeah. You're just kind of doing stuff. Um, It's kind of like, you know, taking a nap in the afternoon because- uh, you know, you can't figure out what, what to do with your time. Right? Well, and, that's, and that's the value of all those like additional mechanisms in that open world style game, right? Because if you've, if you've got fishing, if you can build stuff, if you can craft things, if you can talk to NPCs, if you can see if, if the longer that list gets and the more of those you have access to, mm-hmm. then any one that you can grok, right? Becomes one that you can fall back on with a purpose, right? Yep. Yeah. 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 And so that's that's the ultimate goal in the game in the, in the a, after the sort of intro sequence of things that the player goes through where we teach them how the game works, then we start to introduce more concepts like fishing where we don't have to explain it as much, right? Because people have interacted with enough of the game systems that they can figure out how to like build a fishing pole and however all that stuff works, right? And so those are things that we can leave more open-ended and also have running in parallel where we can have a whole bunch of fishing stuff going on. We can have a whole bunch of like main story stuff. We can have a bunch of side quests and characters and, and like new zones and whatever. And the player can kind of choose their path uh, once we've taught them how to yeah. how it's, to do that. Right. Absolutely. So yeah. So that, that's the tricky yeah. part. Then it's just like as quickly as possible, but without too much handholding, getting people to see all of the possible problem spaces that they can interact with, and then have enough points toward you know solutions that they might be able to explore. Uh, and yeah, it's like, it's so, it's just so, so fragile. You miss it. You miss one beat. You put, put E on the wrong hotkey and boom, everyone's lost about where they're fucking doing. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Well, this is what, yeah, this is why you just, you just do this like 20 times, right? Just have people play it fresh, play it for a couple mm-hmm. hours, watch what they do. Take notes, take notes of literally anything where you, where you think like, oh wow, they like took a while to get to this menu that I thought that they would have gotten to mm-hmm. earlier, you know? Mm-hmm. And just try to reverse engineer what you did because it's not about them. It's really easy to blame the the player, oh, no. right? But like, mm-hmm. but no, this whole situation is contrived. Like you as the designer failed in some way to to get that player into that space, right? And so you just have to keep owning that and just keep iterating on it. I think this also that. emphasizes so. a really important point that it's because it's really easy to kind of discount the impact of choices that don't seem mm-hmm. as important, like input schemas right like they don't seem as important as what the inputs do and then like the game and all this stuff right but there have been a number of games where my experience using the controls was so bad and my ability to then like mitigate that in some way was so weak that i just stopped playing you know there was there was one there was a game that my wife and i were playing uh, I can't remember what it was. It was, a, it was a kind of a some kind of an R, R, top-down RPG mm-hmm. pixel style thing. Very fun. Had tons of tons of good reviews and stuff. Um, and I think it was meant to be played with a controller. So I think they did all of their like testing and design around that. And I was just playing with a keyboard and mouse. <laughs> their their decisions for where the fucking hotkeys were were bonkers. wild. They were just bonkers. <laughs> and so. So like it was the kind of thing where it's like almost like I have to like cross my hands kind of oh, yeah, you know, it was just it was just it was wild and and they there was no key remapping of any sort mm. and so I literally downloaded third party key remapping software to make a profile that I could like <laughs> think through what would be a better strategy for like where these keys should be you know so that I could because the game was like 
engaging enough and I was wanting to, and I was wanting to experience it that I was willing to put up with that, right? But then a while later when I saw that game in my list again, I was like, oh, I should come back to this. And I immediately remembered. And I was like, oh, I don't have that. I don't know how to, like, I don't remember how I made it so that the controls were good. Yeah. So <laughs> I just, I was like, I guess I'm not going to play that. Right? Like that still yeah. matters a lot. Yeah, matters a lot. Now, speaking of onboarding and things being way more complicated and confusing than they should be, mm. let's talk about Google Stadia, Ooh. <laughs> which has announced that they are shutting down. So for those who didn't know about it, about Google Stadia, which is, you know, most people. I you think, mean about its existence period or? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Google Stadia was something that we actually complained about at one of the GDCs right <laughs> before the pandemic hit. Was because that 2017 or 18? No, no, it, it was, was probably was 18. Probably 2018. 18 or I'm pretty 19. sure it was 19. Yeah, it was the, the last 19. one. It was the last one we went to before mm-hmm. you. So uh, there was a, a, a window of time where all of a sudden every, every major company decided that cloud gaming is the future of gaming, mm-hmm. okay? Because they were like, hey, look, you're on the go. You're always leaving the house. You go places. You're a member of society, but you also want to be playing your video games, right? So we're going to solve that problem for you by making it so that you can play all your favorite games without needing a console or a gaming PC or whatever. All you need is something with a web browser and we will stream the game to you. And very fast, high, low latency internet. That's the requirement. Uh, Yeah. You need, all you need is incredibly fast internet Mm -hmm. and a device with a browser, Mm -hmm. right? And a device with, I guess, some kind of a controller or something, right? Um, So Google Stadia was Google's attempt at solving this perceived problem. Um, and they launched it with like 12 games, I think, in the in the catalog. I think, was it um, Assassin's Creed, their big flagship? Yeah, like, they got Ubisoft. Look, look at this title they we got, got. They got Cyberpunk in there, which, you know. Uh, well, I do, which, I mean, the, uh, the promise of it, I do want to back up, because like the promise of Cloud Tech is basically saying that a developer can make a game as ridiculously beautiful and hardware inefficient as possible, like ray tracing, all this, like, just the most ludicrously gorgeous shit you've ever seen in your life. And you could play it on like a brick of a phone. As long as the phone has the internet, right? Like that's basically yeah. the promise of it, which is bringing, uh, basically being able to bring extremely high fidelity experiences to low end machinery, which is what most people have, yeah. you know? So, but I think there is probably a few problems that, well, actually there's, there's a number there's of several problems. problems. <laughs> there's several problems that, that we kind of identified early, um, when this was first announced. And one of the reasons that we were kind of peeved about this was that Google had bought out the entire second floor of the convention center <laughs> to advertise Stadia, which was the place where we would normally hang out and just spend time. It's all the tables. People. Yeah. 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 It was like, it was like other developers were just gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there was no reasonable space to just like sit and chat with other developers. Cause Google was like, Stadia's here. We, you know, <laughs> this is our space now, which, you know, that was not a, not a great first like PR move for their, no, but their it, new product. It, but it know. lined up with the with the whole thing where it was like it was as if they never talked to anybody outside of Google about any action. They just showed up they and announced showed up. that they were gonna be doing yeah. this thing. Um yeah. And so 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 a whole bunch of stuff happened over the years, you know. One is is suddenly the idea of needing a portable gaming device became less important once everybody was trapped in their house for a year and a half. That's true. That's definitely true. Um, I don't think that we've would have got, changed anything, honestly. No, no, but yeah, we've got we've got um, Xbox, we've got PlayStation. You know, people have their their gaming consoles, people have their their gaming PCs, and they have and, their game libraries. 
They have their libraries of games. I um, think that's still the number one. Thing. Well, or and, a and they subscription can, also. Yeah, or so something too. like Game Pass, yeah. 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 So Stadia's yeah. model was to, you had a subscription to Stadia to be able to use the service. But, but you yeah. still and bought, you still the games, bought on games. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but it wasn't to a pre-existing library you already had either. Correct. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. And, it was, and it was, yeah, and it was in its own ecosystem because, uh, you know, you can't have just like free web access for all these games because that's a security issue because mm-hmm. it's, it's a game on Google's server, right? So like having just totally open online stuff is a big problem. So developers had to kind of solve that and there was an extra cost. Um, and of course, uh, one of the big promises of Stadia was, like Sam was saying, this idea of like super high fidelity graphics and stuff. Well, what if suddenly uh, GPUs, the cost of GPUs goes up by 10x, mm-hmm. right? Well, it did, right? Uh, so the, the hardware that, that Google needed to, to make this happen became incredibly expensive. And there was this chip shortage. There was all this other stuff, right, that happened in the past couple of years. So their costs were just astronomical. Um, and also most people don't have the high speed internet required to play these games at a low enough latency for it to be a really good experience. Yeah, certainly in the United right? States where we have, you know, notoriously horrible internet infrastructure. Spotty and I think, I think Google was betting on, on that being a, a thing that would be rapidly improving in the United States because that's also the dominant market, right? Uh, for this yeah. kind of a thing. And then of course that, that was never going to happen, but it, it certainly didn't help at all these other things. But I still I still think at the core of it, like every I think everything, if you like look at everything that they were trying to do and every claim of a problem that existed that they were trying to solve, each one just falls apart under examination. And I think that's like the core. Because <laughs> even the whole like we could hey, you can make like any game. Sky's the limit. Imagine, right. Except Except not really though. Except like, not really, because what is the Google com- still has hardware that well, they're no, but it's not even that. <laughs> it's what does it mean to make a high fidelity game. You can't make a game that's super high fidelity without good hardware in the first place, right? But you also need a huge, huge investment in like the higher fidelity and the bigger the game and the more like resource takes and so more on. Expensive like, that basically is coupled with the cost of development. Oh, yeah. And if the only place that can run then is now Stadia, because nobody has like no player of games yeah. out there. Then has, you have locked your game, your super expensive to make game yeah. into one untested platform. Yeah. And I think Why this, I think this is the, cause like, cause we, cause we were, I think we can say without, as long as we give details that we were talking to Stadia about level head mm-hmm. and there were, you know, there, there's like, there was this like laundry list of like, I mean, honestly, very cool technical features that Stadia had. And they're like, Oh, well, if you like, if you implement this thing, then like that's, that would be, that would potentially put you into a different category. We could do a better business deal and you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. Every one of those things though, is like, you're implementing this for Stadia. That's like, that's what it is. And that was just pretty real. common for like just about any platform deal yeah. that we would do. That's a super common thing. It is. Yeah. Like, we have this like on, you know, if you're talking about like steam, like they have their steam achievements and they yeah. have now steam deck. Right. And, and like, if you wanted to do, do something with them uh, to get your game promoted on steam, it's a good chance that they would argue like, well, you've got to like, yeah, actually we need, support we need all this, of right? our, and, yeah, and, and it's not even that that's yeah. unfair, right? But the question is always like, what is the size of the ask that is being made, right? Yeah. And when you're coming from an untested platform, um, like Stadia, that didn't have a market at the time, that meant that the only money you would be getting that you could count on was coming directly from them to pay you to put your game on the thing, right? Mm-hmm. And that means that that had to be sufficient 
to cover the gamble that you were making, right? And this is a lot, we get reached out to a lot by smaller um, companies who don't have like a well-established platform, even if they look promising, but they're not well-established, the audience isn't there yet. And we always have to say, well, no, because the thing that you want us to do is now all this extra dev work. And there's there's just no way we can count on this actually, you know, coming back in some way. But if now the if the big claim is not even just like, oh, we got these cool features that like can only work in this context, right? Which is already high cost, but it's like literally we want you to make games you wouldn't make anywhere else, right? Mm-hmm. Which means you can't put them anywhere else, which means uh-huh. your, pot- your potential revenue and longevity of that game is yep. dramatically reduced. Well, and it means the scale of the game you're making is you're talking tens of millions minimum dev costs for that scale game or probably a lot more than that. You're talking AAA budget stuff, right? And who's going to do that? Nobody's going to do yeah. that unless Google just throws money at them, right? And maybe they were. maybe they, Which they did, right? yeah. I think well, their average cost, they started their own internal studio to make that, yeah. Stadia games that could only run on Stadia, which then they shut that down after, after I think, a year or something. Um, mm-hmm. And they, up, I believe, I believe their average cost to acquire a game for Stadia was about $12 million that they would like pay studios to like implement all the features and, you know, get, get the content over there and stuff. Cause some of that might be like a minimum guarantee. So that might be covering dev costs, you know, whatever. Right. So, yeah. So, you know, it just, it didn't take off. Well, I think, um, but if, if I, and, yeah, if I may, I think that, I think the core problem with it is just, it's, it, it tends to be, you know, I think Google's perennial problem, which is that they are very good at engineering things, but they are not necessarily very good at, marrying the engineering solutions that they've come up with in the first place, which is what they're good at and interested in to actual problems people have. And I think mm-hmm. yeah. in this particular context, which is a you, classic tech company problem. Oh right? yeah. Classic tech. Yeah. You're like, well, we built, but look how cool it is. And it's like, it was cool. It was, it was very, very cool. cool, but, uh, but who cares? And so, uh, the problem, I think that they, the major problem they had was a mismatch in the reality of like, yeah, you can stream, you can stream extremely high fidelity games to stuff. Uh, to a low-end devices, which again is the promise. But the question is, who wants a high-fidelity gaming experience? Yeah, who, nobody wants that. Yeah, who isn't already in some ways invested in uh, a tech part of the ecosystem? Who doesn't already have a console? I mean, phones cost yeah. like fucking a billion dollars. An Xbox phones is are way more expensive than our console. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, like somebody, it's somebody who has the interest and the disposable income, you know, to subscribe to this service and buy games on it. Yes, but you um, cannot buy them anywhere else or, or who buy wouldn't a prefer console. to. Or who wouldn't prefer to. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that yeah, like, that's I don't, me I don't even play like I don't even play console games on my couch with my big TV because it's just inconvenient enough, right? And like my game selection <laughs> is so limited and like you have to like flip through like hardware settings to like get to the right you know, there's like there's just enough going yeah. on there. Well that, I didn't like, start doing it until I got I play Xbox, my right? play my rig, you know? Yeah. 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 Because yeah. uh, once I got a game pass and uh, that's that's what made me actually become like a, you know, more of a console couch gamer as opposed to a PC gamer. Yeah. Because then I just had a bunch of stuff I could go do. So I think it's just a fundamental mismatch at the very base of the, the very base of the whole thing before you went any further into like, you know, any engineering solutions, anything else is like, it doesn't make any damn sense. It just didn't. And everybody- There wasn't a market there and they were going to have to create it. Right. And creating a new market is just, Absolutely, the hardest, most risky thing you could possibly or impossible, do. depending on the context. Well, I think I it's usually it, impossible. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it exists. Well, no, yeah, and this is <laughs> why I think because I think I think what we're seeing now is is companies approaching cloud gaming stuff, and I think the the right way 
over time, mm-hmm. which is it's supplemental. You've got you've got companies like Microsoft um, working on their cloud gaming service, which works with your existing Xbox library, right? Mm-hmm. So they're kind of so it's like it's viewed as a perk. Mm-hmm. It's like a bonus thing that you can do on the side of your normal gaming, as opposed to like the way that you game. Yeah, I mean, I use it for uh, just cloud gaming. I use it when I poking around on Game Pass because you can basically like I can pop in and just demo. I can just play a game in like literally a minute and a half as opposed to waiting. Like all I have to do is connect to their fucking server and it runs really well. So like I played Hades on the thing, for example, without any trouble. Mm-hmm. And like as opposed to having to wait, you know, your however many gigs of the damn thing to download if it's a big AAA mm-hmm. game or something like that. You literally just pop right in, which is awesome for that like yeah. initial Well that was a big selling thing. point for Stadia too, right? But they didn't have a library of games for you to browse. It wasn't it wasn't just yeah, it launched with twelve games. Um, yeah, as opposed to yeah, like, it just didn't like, matter. But how much? Like it's like three hundred something games are now in Game Pass or something oh, yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's whole thing is like we have a whole bunch of manually curated dope titles, right? <laughs> yeah. That like you wouldn't normally just, just pick one. But you can and it's literally be awesome. You can just pick, pick one, one and you can just yeah. play it, right? Because yep. if you're because normally you're on your like if you're on your own machine, right? You're limited by the fact that every fucking game is one hundred and fifty gigabytes. Right? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And it takes two hours to download, and then even once you've downloaded it, you don't have any hard drive space left for the next game, right? And so, like, and those were real concerns that like Stadia was explicitly trying to address. It just didn't have like the business context. Yeah, got real weird. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Anyways. So this is. I wonder if there's a word for this because I I feel like what we're seeing with Stadia is just the exact same scenario that we see with crypto and NFTs Mm -hmm. and the metaverse. It's basically either a tech company or a or a group of tech of like engineers basically who have devised an incredibly complicated solution to a simple problem um as opposed to you know uh, I, I think a oh, good, I think, a I, think good a, I think it's just decoupled from any problems they've actually yeah, just devised well, a really cool technology yeah right they've perceived something that could be crypto as a technology is fucking cool right like it's it's like cool what it can do right it's just that it isn't actually useful right and instead of just kind of leaving it at that where it's like here's here's a showpiece of this cool tech we figured out how to make right and it every they want everybody wants to turn everything into a into a company and and it's still like there's a there's still a lot of this like it's like it's like build in public and like these big like open source Mm -hmm. kind of uh, entrepreneurial movements that are, you know, funded by various institutions and such, right? And every time I get stuff out of these things, like every fucking thing I see is just like, here's a cool idea for a technology I had, and then you're, and then I'm, and I'm looking at, it and I'm like, first, like I don't know why, I don't know why I need this, but more importantly, how the fuck are you going to make money off of this, right? Because mm-hmm. the assumption is just if you have cool technology, then you can turn it into a successful business, yeah. right? It's completely divorced from even like what the technology is yeah, for. The technology is in the world. It's a tool. It's a tool to solve a problem. Yeah. And you and you make money as a business by solving problems for people. I think if you talk to any right. any game developer with a failed game, uh, we're very well acquainted with the sense of I built something really cool. Uh, mm-hmm. and it should be worth and nobody wanted. Nobody it. wants yeah. <laughs> Like it's the yeah. same deal, you know. It's like it's yeah. uh, it's it's a yeah. cool piece of tech, yeah. but that might be the end of the line for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need a you need a market, and so when I think about stuff like um, the metaverse, right? It's like, why did people join Facebook to begin with? Um, it's because there wasn't really much else like it other than MySpace, which was a weird, chaotic like everybody customized their own HTML. Like it was just a, it was weird. Yeah, you it was, know? A it was kind of, of the wild west. Yeah, 
So it was like a cleaner, more kind of like intuitive and sort of in some ways at the beginning felt more kind of secure and trustworthy than something like MySpace, which felt a little bit loose, you know? Yeah, I feel like you were going to get a virus at any moment. (laughs) And on top of that, you know, the social aspect of it was it was exclusive to individual colleges. Like you needed a college email address to sign up for an account and they rolled it out college by college, basically targeting like young people who are tech savvy, right? Um, And so it was a place where, you know, you would exist and collaborate and communicate with your cohorts, Mm -hmm. with like your your, your buddies, your friends, people you knew. Um, And then it opened up to the whole world, right? And now suddenly your your extended family members who you haven't spoken to in a long time and your Mm -hmm. newsfeed fills up with their political opinions and baby pictures, Mm -hmm. right? And – and, and also over time, all of these um, issues about how Facebook is, you know, has allowed dramatic uh, upheaval in terms of, of uh, social movements. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all this kind of stuff um, and allowing like elections to be interfered with and just all, all kinds of just real bad shit. And they, as far as I think anybody's concerned – they just don't have any public goodwill at, no, at all. No, like not. It's, it's not. It's not like. It's not like sentiment is low. It's like sentiment is at is hostile, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, so now you're going to take a company mm-hmm. with that reputation, and then you're going to say, "Hey, we want to make a. We want to make a, a, a VR." Universe mm-hmm. where you can do anything, you can right? buy like, okay, property and yeah, do just yeah. do whatever. It's like okay, but you, what you're describing is just you know the internet. Like you can already just do anything on your computer already. Um, and of course, what it's just a transparent cash grab for them to say, yeah, but we want you to do that in a way that we can take money from the middle. Like we like we yeah. want to be the middleman in everything that you well, do on the internet. I think at the end, so but like for some of these technologies, like the. Like the the actual like taking all the bells and whistles away sales pitch is like, hey, new 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 capitalism, but even worse actually, right? That's like what because <laughs> right? like the metaverse is like you can now become basically in a sense a feudal lord in, in the virtual reality, and like whoever's the richest also gets to have the most stuff. But now it's completely unlimited because it's virtual, right? And it's yeah, like and it's unregulated crypto, because it's, like, yeah, it's, unregulated. A, it's an you imaginary just, yeah. space yeah. that we own, right? Yeah. So we decide what the rules are. Yeah, and, and they so, can't see that they're just taking like the worst things that exist right now, and they're just they're just like, what if we made? What if we use really cool technology though, mm-hmm. and made it even easier and to again, do that terrible again, stuff? It is cool. Uh, this it is, is cool. Yep. This is the the beef I've got with the whole like how people talk about stuff because I'm like, people either are just like deriding the whole. Every bit of whether it's you know crypto, whether it's uh, metaverse stuff, whatever VR, um, or they're like completely putting their heads in the sand and ignoring sort of a lot of the frankly kind of obvious you know market trends or facts of that. Somehow, somehow these things oftentimes are just missing the market in terms of actually doing anything that a person would want, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's like you can, it's okay to you could just have both of those next to each other and be like, these are really cool pieces of tech that, mm-hmm. in many ways, have no point and are extremely wasteful in terms of resources, attention, whatever else. Currently, and again, mm-hmm. this is the whole thing. Who knows? Where this and is honestly, going. it would be great if things could just be cool because you know they didn't have to generate infinite yeah. money, right? That's actually the world that I want to live in is the one where I can just be like, oh, I just thought of this cool, you know, this cool like programming thing I can do to make, to like make this thing that only I would even give a shit about, right? Or only like these 10 people in the world or whatever, right? And, and I can just go do that. And I don't need to now go convince a million people that they should 
throw their personal data into it and their mm-hmm. invest their time and money into it, right? Because I can just make a cool thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's that uh, where the rubber meets the road of yeah. somebody just going, oh, it'd be kind of cool if, mm-hmm. right? And, and what they're saying it would be cool if is actually some just big technical thing that like it would be basically what they're saying is it would be kind of interesting to see what it would look like to solve this problem, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But just because it's interesting from a technical perspective, just because it's kind of cool to like think about doesn't mean that it's good or that yeah, anybody or wants anything. it or that it's even useful. Nope. You know? uh, and I, I feel like we're just kind of in this weird, like kind of like turbulent time it's almost, it almost feels like another dot com mm-hmm. bubble, yeah. right? Where everybody, everybody at that time was like, "Oh, it'd be cool if we had a website." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, that was that was just all that it was, right? And then everybody had a website, and uh, turns out almost all of them uh, didn't need did to not be websites. Yeah, and so what you have mm-hmm. is like if a company had a website or was a website, basically, then its stock price went through the roof, right? Because having a website was viewed as being the thing that made your company valuable, mm-hmm. except. The website still has to do something yes. that actually, that do something. actually yeah. adds value, and almost none of them did, right? Uh, and then they all crashed except for the ones that actually – I mean, even the ones that were useful crashed. Everything crashed, right? But the ones that were useful were actually generating revenue. That's because they were just e-commerce. Like the ones yeah. that, the ones that survive like, were just like, oh, here's the e-commerce version of our regular fucking store, yeah. right? Or, or a new e-commerce website that isn't like Amazon, right? They didn't have a brick and mortar store ever behind it. But mm-hmm. either way, it was like that's – the stuff that was successful was the stuff that like was obviously useful that the technology enabled actually somebody. enabled where it wasn't – they were trying to figure out a way to make a website that makes money. Right, they were trying to figure out how do we use a website as an extension of what we're already doing to make it easier for the so- the problems that we are actually solving. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to be solved. Right, and I, and I think it was an easy gauge, right? Which is like if, if if you hear about some new tech, whether it's like metaverse or crypto or NFT, if if after somebody explains it to you, if your response is, "But what would I use that for?" Mm-hmm. Then it's already it's already over, right? Because like. If you understanding what the thing is doesn't inherently give you like Some a solution to like, a problem, oh, really? like you're saying I could do because like when people talk about the metaverse, yeah. I'm like I'm always just like why why would I want to hang out? <laughs> why? Well, why? And we and we should say that like like because I think the, the actually the core problem here isn't even that these don't solve a real problem. It's that they're they're being mass marketed. As solutions to a wide array, it's it's snake oil sniffing, right? Oil. Right, as it, same as like snake oil, it's like oh, this cures all of your diseases, right? But yep. the, but the reality is like you know maybe some people like to drink snake oil, you know there might be a real market. Well, it's going to be a cooking. small market, yeah. yeah it might be good for something, right? <laughs> uh, and similarly, oh. like you know, crypto as like a as a thing, like yeah, like it has a very specific purpose, which is make, to make these tradable tokens, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and like yeah, they're they're, they're there are niche use cases for that. Absolutely. Totally. Right? Yeah. But you don't need to then try to figure out how to make it work for every, every fucking piece of every market. Right. And I think this is like, this is what the kind of the classic tech, you know, tech bro, tech company dream is, is always like, Ooh, okay. Now we need a billion customers. Right. So how do we, how do we make this thing? And in fact, we only make things if we think we can get a hundred yeah, million or, or the only purpose. Or the only purpose of the tech is not to solve a problem, but to extract cash. It's just to make money, yeah. Because right? I, I got a I got an email from a company 
a little while ago saying like, hey, we're starting up this new uh, fantasy sports uh, like app, okay? But it's all built around NFTs. <laughs> and we're looking for somebody to be our, our uh, lead designer for this thing. And I was like, well, I mean, you're barking up the wrong tree for that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, thanks. Um, but just the idea that like you would take something that is currently very popular, which, you know, fantasy sports. And a lot of that is about like building a team and like uh, getting players for your team and, you know, basically having like contracts and stuff. And then the only thing that you're improving upon is just making it so that it's easier for you to ex- basically so that people are paying real money to each other for like buying and selling the players for their team. And, they, and that you now, that, that technology allows you to become a middleman where you just like take a cut of every transaction. Yeah, it doesn't actually add so anything the, for the people involved. Yeah, the experience is not better yeah. at yeah. all. And in fact, it's just more expensive and kind of worse for the people involved. But now you put yourself in a position where you can try to like just take more money from it. That is actually true. So, like everything right now, like all the, the latest, like what all the tech is that people are trying to make be a thing, right? Is all middleman extraction. Like that's what yeah, it no, all yeah. is, right? It's not we're, innovation. We're like at, yeah, we're like at peak, like, mm, how do I connect these two things and sit in the middle and just like take as much as I can in the yep. process? But this is true of like, this is how like TikTok works, like where it's like, hey, I give you a way to make content so that you can become popular, right? And then we'll give you a little bit of money to encourage you to do it. And then we take, because I think they take like 50% of the money or some, some insane thing. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, they get most of it. Um, totally and, uh, and then Twitch, I, I, I constantly see like big... Twitch streamers mm-hmm. complaining about how like Twitch just takes everything, you know? Oh yeah. I, s- like, I yeah. saw that the, the top TikTok, the top viewed, the top viewed TikToker <laughs> uh, from last year, which I think is that dude who just like doesn't say anything. But oh, just that fucking hilarious guy who just like, yeah, make, he just demonstrates how other people are stupid. <laughs> Somebody will do some dumb craft and he'll just like solve the problem with a household object, you know? Um, <laughs> Uh, but so he, he was the most viewed TikToker mm. and he got like $16 million or something. Shit. Which, which to me, I'm thinking like, how many views does this, he's got to have views in the billions, yeah, billions and billions crazy. of billions. Right. And that all he got from that. So he, no, he's I will making, say $16 million is enough. Oh, well, no, it's, it's $16 million is a lot, but what you're looking at is not how much it is, but the relative amount. Yeah. yeah. The question is how much it's still got. Yeah. 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 Because, because he made the most yeah, right. And he, and like he made nobody made more than enough. Him. But yeah, but the point is that that TikTok extracted far more. <laughs> yeah, so as, much more. As so much more. Yeah. yeah. So, so he's making like a you know fractions of a penny, you know, per per view that he generates. I think my favorite uh, tech bro pitch to me so far about Bitcoin was about using it to uh, to manage mortgage contracts. And I was like, yeah, the whole DAO thing, the they call it this something autonomous organization. Yeah. And I was like, distributed autonomous organization. Nobody. And they're like, they're like, it's a contract that nobody can change, you know. And that's not good. And I was like, this is not. Yeah. (laughs) But I was like, that is how contracts work already. With my favorite, sign it and you send it over. It's dated. It's fine. This is not. And yeah, everyone's got evidence of it because. And a contract using Ethereum is is programmed, which means if you wanted to bring that to say like a court and say like, hey judge, look at my Ethereum contract. Oh, well, you better hope that the judge is a fucking computer scientist because they're not going to be able to understand what it is that you're talking about. But they can understand if you just have a piece of paper that says, hey, we agreed to this, and then you both signed it. Yeah. Like, that's I think easy. as far as that, like, works, again, that, you know? that, like, this is a way for me to insert myself in an industry that I basically don't understand and then start making mm-hmm. money 
off of the people who are doing the same thing they were doing before, but now it seems more. Which I think is a perfect summary of like, that's a perfect summary of just classic (laughs) tech company thing. Yeah. Yeah, It's just, yeah, it is. Can I just see somebody struggling with something and then come in with your like weird, uh, like utopian Mm -hmm. technologist ideals, right? Where you assume that like nobody's racist, like nothing bad ever happens, and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. inequality doesn't exist despite all you know, like you just assume that you can't impact any of that, and none of that is a thing, right? And then you're it's just like technology. You, though. you look at a thing you don't understand, and you're like, I can fix this. I will say, I also okay, go ahead. with this with the stadium announcement yesterday. I saw some tweet, some guy dredged up of the uh, initial introduction of it at GDC at the GDC we were at by the CEO yeah. of Google who walked out on stage and he's pronking around and then he's like i have a confession to make i'm not much of a gamer and that was that was his opening line yeah, to so why us. are you here telling us this? so again <laughs> get out of the biz get out of our business quit wasting your time yeah. let's do something else or if you're gonna cool. do it hire people who know what they're doing and then have those people come talk they didn't try they did yeah they did they have phil harris actually good people Jeez. yeah and we talked to some great people Indeed. over there too um, good lord yeah but it's like they, they it's like they hired a, a crew of sailors for a boat that like didn't didn't have a bomb. That's right. Yeah, that's and they're what like, it felt like. They're like, take this thing Land across the ocean. Made, like, but yeah. it is like actively sinking really right. fast. It's like somebody, <laughs> like, just keep going. Right. It's like somebody who didn't know anything about boats <laughs> built a boat and then they for, hired the a bunch best of sailors. The best sailors. Be- excellent sailors. And they put them on this wacky ass boat where nothing was where it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And they and they gave him a compass, but the compass was just spinning. Just go like, wild. Go, go where the compass is, is pointing mm-hmm. you to, right? And then they and cut then the main. Uh, they just cut off the sail at like about a year in. Just cut the yeah, studio. Yeah. Just cut off the sail. You know what? Uh, you guys don't need that actually anymore. We're just gonna cut that. We're just gonna take it out. Seems like the boat's a little yeah, heavy. Just, you know, so we're gonna take that out and yeah. let's go. We'll take out the engine and the sails. <laughs> and, yeah, like, come on. Yeah, Fucking yeah. I saw. It. I saw it probably, probably the last thing <laughs> that. That to say on it since we're we're already deep into this episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I saw a, a take that I thought was funny. I don't think is like really accurate, but it is interesting. Which was which was uh, Google Google being notorious for just pulling the plug on things that aren't working out mm-hmm. for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to the point there's there's some website that is like the Google Graveyard or something. I can't oh, yeah. It's like the list of it's like you see the logo and the name of like it's like it's wild. There's like a hundred services in there, right? And so they're notorious for this. And when Sadia came out, I, I think this. everybody knew, like everybody was like, this doesn't seem like it's going to work. Everybody but, was like, when is this thing going to be deleted? Yeah. <laughs> and so, so, so somebody was you know, noting about this kind of interesting thing where it's like, if you become a company who's notorious for, for just getting rid of things, right, if they aren't working out, and then you launch a product that you're trying to like create a market with, and you're trying to mm. sell, right? And nobody's nobody has high confidence yet in it, right? Mm. They're also not going to risk anything on it because yeah, yeah it's a, it's a self fulfilling it's a self fulfilling prophecy, right? So yeah. so the end result is inevitable, and it is true that like when I was looking at this, I was like I was like oh this isn't going to pan out, and I, I basically stopped paying attention to it because I was like oh, yeah. this isn't going to work, and so even though it's cool, like it won't last, right? And so, well, I don't think that's like the, the primary culprit because I think the primary one is just the absence of a market, right? But I would bet that that did have a meaningful right. impact, which is now it's, and it's, it's own kind of an interesting problem of like, if you become a company who who people understand if they take a gamble on something that you're doing, there's a high likelihood that you're going to lose something later, mm-hmm. right? Because that's true of like almost every Google service that, that they've asked, right? It's like, it comes up, people are like, oh, fucking cool. I like the people who like it on board, right? Yeah. Yep. And they stay there. And then someday Google's like, and they always give you like six months. It's like nothing, right? They're like, we're turning this off in six months. And if that's what your interaction is going to be with that, then anything that 
over like over time, anything that becomes that's clearly a gamble that the company is taking is something that the people who would normally be there to be like, oh yeah, I'll give this a shot, I'll invest in this, right? Aren't there? Because like, because it's, 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 it's yeah, what fair. is the ask? It's always a question, right? I think, I think for Google Stadia, they they just underestimated the ask they were making from everybody, but in particular the actual players, because they were like. Trust that we're going to keep this thing. Trust that we're going to put games on here because they weren't near really when it came out, right? Trust the technology. It's like it's just like stacking trust on trust on trust. Mm-hmm. None of it even existing yet, right? Yeah. And then now you're going to be paying this like monthly subscription in the hopes that all of these your dreams come true, right? And now in that context where you don't think it will, mm-hmm. and you know they'll pull the plug if it doesn't. Like, don't look at well, the graveyard. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, don't look and at the like, you, you are your reputation, right? So like Google had the reputation of killing services. So then if they announced something like Stadia where they were asking people to invest a lot of time and money and everything in, into it, then that's a big ask, right? And like with Metaverse, you've got Facebook who doesn't have a good reputation on anything, whether it's privacy or data management or just what you know, whatever it is. And their ask is, hey, Come into like do everything in our platform and give us all the data for everything that you do, mm-hmm. right? No. Then the response is generally <laughs> to be like, I I don't think I will, yeah. right? Or or so. Adobe buying Fig. So Figma is this like super popular uh, web prototyping platform, right? Got announced last week or two weeks ago as being bought by yeah. Adobe for twenty billion dollars, right? And it was the same deal. Like the only responses that we got from that I saw from mm-hmm. that were people being like, Oh no, because Adobe notoriously is uses anti like dark patterns, which is the idea of like you design your system in, to intentionally make it hard for people to do stuff, right? So like portability, to, yeah, portability. Get get out of a service, get out of a contract, you know, whatever. Right? Like in industry, my only interactions with Adobe, like purchasing things and stuff, have been very negative, right? Mm-hmm. And they're notorious for that. So the only response, the only public response to that announcement, which should have been like. Oh, cool. Like now they get the resources of Adobe. Like yeah. it could be even bigger now, right? It was only dread and people <laughs> abandoning ship for competing products, right? Like that yep. shit really matters. Like it builds up over time, like the stuff that your company decides to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, you, you can't live forever if you if your every move is to alienate people. You know, mm-hmm. like as a company, you just you can't sustain that. Uh maybe that'll get you through your earnings report for the next quarter, right? But yeah, it's a long-term due, strategy. Baby. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's yeah, why like so much of time. so much of like capitalist success is about the fact that it becomes actually just hard to fail the yeah. more you have, right? Because they're not successful because they're doing a good job. They're doing they're successful despite not doing a good job, right? Mm-hmm. At some point, that's kind of what always ends they, up happening. They have the yeah, they have the resources to just engage in anti-competitive strategies, yeah. right? So, and like, so you can just why would they, why would Adobe buy Figma not because it's a hole in their like portfolio that they and they want to make improve it their offerings. <laughs> Yeah, it's more likely that it's a, it's a competing product. That's the only reason. It's a competing it. product, and either and they're like, well, either we can just leave it alone and extract cash from it, or we can just buy it and kill it, right? Yep. Because you know, either way, we win, uh, and that's fine. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so there you go. That's uh, that's what's been going on in the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't get to any questions this week, but we'll we'll definitely hit some oh, totally. uh, yeah. next time. Uh, so that's all the time we have for this week. We'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Sampa DaCosta, for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, just go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.